So I want to take a moment now to thank the Digital Hub because they are the main sponsors for this season of InspireFest, the podcast. The Digital Hub is in the Liberties in the heart of Dublin City. It's a collaborative space and it's home to lots of technology and digital media companies. But it's more than just an office. We're based here in the Digital Hub because as a startup company, we didn't know how fast we were going to grow and the Digital Hub gave us that flexibility to grow at whatever speed we needed. Norman Houston is my name. I'm one of the co-founders of Bizimply, a workforce management software company based in the cloud, targeted specifically at retail businesses and hospitality businesses. You can find out more about Norman and lots of other innovators at thedigitalhub.com. Hi everyone and welcome to InspireFest the podcast. My name is Claire O'Connell and I'm going to be your host over the next 11 episodes. My own background is in science. I have a PhD in cell biology and for the last, oh gosh, lots of years I've been a science writer. So I get to go to these cool gigs like InspireFest, which is a two-day conference that explores science, technology, design and the arts, get to learn all sorts of cool stuff. Myself and one of the producers of the podcast, Sean, were especially lucky because we got to spend time backstage talking to some of the really amazing speakers just when they came off stage to find out a little bit more about them and you know, what their world is about and what their thoughts are on the various topics that interest us, like science, technology, the future. So we have lots to get through, but in this first episode, we got to meet two guests. We got to meet Raju Narasetti and Sinead Burke. Now, Raju is the CEO of Gizmodo Media Group. He's a really interesting guy. Gizmodo oversees a group of digital journalism sites that include some of the web's most beloved and authentic brands. That authenticity is really important, like Gizmodo, Jezebel, Deadspin, Jalopnik and The Root. Raju has had a really interesting career. He was the Senior Vice President of Strategy at News Corp. He also did a huge amount with Wall Street Journal's digital mobile content strategy. And he's the founder of Mint, which is the second largest business newspaper and website in India. Sinead is from Ireland and she is a PhD candidate at Trinity College Dublin. She's also a really powerful advocate for diversity and inclusion. And if you're not already one of the more than a million people who've checked out Sinead's TED Talk, then be sure you do that. That's Sinead Burke. So one of the things I really liked about doing this interview was uh, I got the opportunity to see Sinead and Raju catch up with each other. I mentioned that Sinead had done a TED Talk in New York, which is where Raju lives, and Raju actually went to see it live. So I don't think they had seen each other since then. So it was kind of fun to see them reconnect backstage at InspireFest and they ended up having a really interesting conversation. So let's hear from Raju. So thanks a million everybody for being here with us. We love you
Raju Narisati, I'm CEO of the Gizmodo Media Group. Raju, what kind of trends have you been seeing in publishing in the last few years? The biggest trend is promiscuity. What digital has enabled audiences that used to be captive to a newspaper is that they can now, at the touch of a button, at the flick of a finger, by talking to their device, can go to any media brand anywhere in the world. So engaging them and making them come back to your brand has become a very profound challenge. It's an interesting challenge, but it's a challenge nonetheless. And how important is authenticity in keeping those audiences? I think having great, good journalism has become table stakes, meaning that you have to have it. But what is it that somebody comes back to you for is usually a voice, a point of view, trust, and kind of speaking in a way that people feel like you're being authentic. So those have become very, very important. And for the brands like mine, which are like Gizmodo and Jezebel, a lot of young people do come back to us because they trust us and they feel like we speak truth and there's a bit of irreverence, there's a bit of humor, there's a bit of in-your-faceness. And that is what appeals to them because anybody can write about tech and a lot of people write about tech. But the reason they come to Gizmodo is because they feel like the journalists are not beholden to anybody. They can call a spade a spade or a Facebook a Facebook. Uh, and that's what gives it kind of the cachet or the engagement that others may not have. Let's talk about the, the target demographics, for want of a better word. Um, I mean, I've heard you talk a little bit before about how important it is to, to capture the people around the age of about 20, 21. Why is that age group particularly important? Uh, for a couple of reasons. One is that if you capture them or if you engage them now, they can potentially be your audiences for the next 30, 40, 50 years. Most newspapers, as you know, have this challenge where the average age of a newspaper subscriber in the U.S. is in the mid-50s now. So you probably have them for 20 years, but if no young people are reading newspapers, you have a cliff that you're going to fall off. With digital brands, I think by focusing on the so-called millennials, the 18 to 34-year-olds, you get to keep them a lot longer if you can. And the other thing is like it's also based on the demographics of a country, right? If you're in a country like India, where the average age of the country is 28, you do want to target that because then you have an audience for the next 50 years. In the US, the average age is a lot older, but because of immigration, because of kind of just the demographic trends in the non-white population, the country will remain very young for a long time. So you do want to focus on that in order to grow your business. And can we explore a little more about how those younger people, how they consume media that's so different to other age groups? Um, you know, obviously they're, they're reading it more on devices rather than papers and everything, but is there something about how they process the information too? I think speed does matter in the sense that they do want to kind of read something quickly and the bite-sizedness of it matters. So we publish um, across our eight sides, we probably, probably 6,000 stories a month, which is a lot, but a lot of them are 400 words, 300 words. But what you will find, interestingly, is that a 300-word story will have 400 comments. So that's what drives the engagement. You build an ecosystem of people who are commenting, and then our journalists participate in those comments. So you build kind of a nice kind of collaborative ecosystem where people feel like they're not being just told something, but are being part of the conversation. So it's important to create communities around conversation, not just focus on the content. 
just as a matter of interest, do the journalists naturally respond to the commentaries or is that something that you encourage them to do? So at, at bigger mainstream media companies, it's been, it's been a bit of a forced thing at, uh, when I was at the Wall Street Journal or at the Washington Post. But at young digital media companies, it's natural for a couple of reasons. One is the average age of my newsroom is 26. So they are used to it because they're also consumers of this kind of journalism. So that gives them kind of an opportunity to kind of feel like they're part of the conversation, they're building up kind of loyalty and trust among their fans, if you will. We think of our readers as super fans, uh, and that's a good way to kind of think of them, saying that what do super fans want? They want very passionate, strong coverage about certain topics, but they want to be part of the conversation. They just don't want to be given a lot of content. Another thing that's very striking across the titles is the diversity of authors. So again, is that something that you've consciously sort of striven for and why is it important? It is simply because um, by 2028, which is about 12 years away, not that far away, a majority of young Americans will be non-white. 52% will be non-white. So if that's the audience you're trying to reach, your newsroom ought to reflect that. So at my company, 50% um, of our journalists are women, 50% are men. The ratio of like, um, you know, white to other um, kind of um, races is also pretty good. If you're trying to reach an audience that is diverse, your newsroom ought to look like that. And my fundamental belief is that you will never fix something that you don't measure. So the first step is to measure what you have. And then we publicly release our diversity numbers because it holds us accountable. Somebody should come back to me next year and, said, and say, well, last year you said your diversity numbers were this. What are they looking like now? So it puts some pressure on me to actually continue to do this and not just rest on my current numbers. Why is the work of Gizmodo more important than ever? Because I think there's a lot of misinformation out there and it's important for people to come to trusted sources and feel like they will hear the truth and that these are not, we have a point of view, we are biased in that sense, but we are not biased from facts. And I think that's an important distinction. So it begins with truth in journalism, that leads to trust. And in our case, we actually have a very vibrant business model as well because it's truth, trust and transactions. We have a big e-commerce business. People trust our journalism enough to actually buy a lot of products from us that we recommend. I think that's the model that we have because end of the day, I could have great journalism and I could have trust, but if my business model is not working, I won't be able to sustain that. It's only, you know, the printing press has been around since what, 1450 and journalism has been around kind of since then. It's only in the 19, 1914, 1915 when um, Walter Williams came up with this creed for journalists, which is that accuracy and fairness ought to be part of journalism. So the idea that fairness and accuracy are part of journalism is actually relatively new. It's only like about 100 years old. So we've lived with like fake news for a very long time. Obviously now it's become a lot more um, critical. It's now part of the Oxford English Dictionary. And some of it has been driven by, um, uh, you know, the president of my country, Donald Trump, uh, who particularly seems to kind of like the idea of like labeling everything that he doesn't like as uh, fake news. But we have lived with it for a very long time. Yeah, and I do want to come to the defense of social media, Facebook, and Twitter, and everybody, right? Because it's important to remember that when we only had newspapers, if a journalist made a mistake, 
the earliest you could correct that was 24 hours later, right? Because that's when the next newspaper came. Um, with the web, obviously, it got a lot faster. But I think with social media now, um, the ability to correct things almost instantaneously is also there, right? I mean, you'll see somebody tweet something, and immediately people will start pointing out that that's not accurate. So the ability for us to kind of disseminate accurate information is also a lot faster now. I think the big difference is that um, if you just step back and say, why is it uh, there is a lot more dissemination of fake news or alternative facts, we've always had confirmation bias, right? Which is that we don't want to kind of hear things that we don't like. I think what is new now is two or three other elements. One is clearly there is the social media algorithms which kind of feed you what you like, and so you do kind of see the same thing, and you think that's the only reality. And then there is this bandwagon effect where, you know, because somebody has, that you follow and trust has said something, you think, oh, it must be true. And I think that's really the real challenge we have now because the spread, the virality of kind of fake news is so much more intense. I think the role technology is playing is changing kind of some of the fundamentals of the media business. And so sustainability of whatever you're doing has become a bit of a challenge. Facebook has 1.9 billion people, uh, out of which 1.45 billion come to them every month. They, their dominance on the kind of the advertising and the business models is so large that you are sometimes at the mercy of them. Right? So I think that's the challenge that most digital media companies still have to figure out to build sustainable business models. And what about opportunities? What opportunities do you see? in online media now? I think the greatest opportunity is the reach. Um, as I said, if, you, uh, if you're a newspaper, it was limited by your printing plant and your distribution and how long it would take for you to get newspapers to doorsteps in the morning window. Now, first of all, it's 24 by seven and I can reach anybody in the world. Obviously, languages matter, but beyond that, we can reach anybody in the world. So the world has become your audience and how much of it you can uh, capture that to me is an amazing opportunity. The other interesting opportunity is that we are in an era when the flow of information has become kind of two ways. So you're no longer just kind of communicating, your readers are responding, they're feeding, there's a lot of user-generated content. So the amount of information that you have at the speed at which you have is also kind of a huge opportunity. I am a PhD candidate in Trinity College Dublin and I own and run the website minimalange.com. I was like, I was expecting to see you this evening. Things have been going incredibly well. Things have been crazy busy. I don't know about well. Some people offer congratulations, some people offer their condolences. How do you respond? Uh, I'm like, I'll take both. Yes. Depends on the day. I run GMG some days and GMG runs me the other days. Okay, that's good. That's a good way to look at it. But how do you manage like the difference between, say, like Jezebel and then The Onion? And obviously they're polar apart in terms of conversation, but probably a similar audience in many ways. Yeah, so uh, I think the way we do it is we keep the journalism mm -hmm. very distinct because they're very natural audiences that they're serving. So we don't expect them to, we don't expect the Jezebel team to worry about Gizmodo or yeah. Jalopnik or Onion. 
That way they're just focused on serving their audiences. All of the so-called synergies in the business come really by having the same platform, by being able to sell advertising across the sites. And probably the culture of the company too, that even though you're working within different publications, you as an individual and as a leader of the company are probably trying to architect a similar vibe or ethos among employees. It's both a blessing and a curse in the sense that um, it's there are five different companies and cultures, so we're trying to put it all together this past year. And every one of them is successful, so that, that tends to kind of have a little bit of hubristic behavior, saying that my way is the best way, and we're like, maybe, but you know, we could change a little bit. The Onion has a very distinct culture, but the challenge with The Onion is it's, uh, it's not journalism, while the Gizmodo Media Group is hardcore journalism, right? It's all facts and news. So putting these together is a bit of a challenge, in some ways, um, but the unifying factor is they all try to reach the same 18 to 34 year old audiences, mm -hmm. and our audiences move fairly seamlessly. Through For, the yeah, so 40% of my daily page views across the network come from people who have come to one site and moved on to the other site. So for example, people will come to Jezebel and they will see a story which says, all of the e-gaming uh, clothes that you can buy for characters on e-games of women are super sexualized. Okay. That's a perfect Jezebel story. Absolutely. What they don't necessarily realize is it's done by Kotaku, my e-gaming site. Had you told a Jezebel person that you will go to Kotaku, they would have denied it saying, why would I ever go to an e-gaming site? But because most of my sites are actually head fakes, mm -hmm. meaning that my e-gaming site, Kotaku, is not really about e-gaming, it's about the culture of gaming, right? My car site, Jalapnik, it doesn't review cars all the time, it's about the culture of driving and transportation, so the stories tend to be broader. But it's almost everything is rooted in a sense of empathy and kind of communication, and it doesn't really matter necessarily what the main topic or genre is, but once you have those skills rooted, in the conversation you can kind of as an individual access anything like you know I don't have a huge interest in soccer I know the offside rule and um, purely because most people say that women don't so for that reason alone I know it but then I wouldn't have a huge interest in the rules of soccer but yet if Cristiano Ronaldo is awarded for something as regards to a humanitarian issue all of a sudden I find myself on a sports site because it's not about the genre but about the person if that makes sense yeah and the theme and the topics you care about and also the the storytelling matters, right? I mean, uh, we were talking earlier about how uh, truth and trust go together. Yes. And so the belief that if you come to the Gizmodo Media Group, you will get journalism that is accurate and that's kind of a little bit irreverent, funny and in your face and sometimes swearing a little bit. Uh, that is consistent. So people actually enjoy the fact that the topics may be different, but the stories read somewhat kind of the same. And that's a big strength. And a very personal question, but I'm fascinated by how you use your Twitter account. And it's really in terms of championing diversity and amplifying other voices and minority voices. Is that really deliberate for you? Yeah, so there are three or four topics that I mostly tweet on, obviously media and journalism. But in this uh, day and age, especially if you are in the US and if you are a first generation tax paying immigrant with two young adult girls in your home, you have to care a lot about what's happening. So I've become a lot more vocal about um, gender issues, about race issues, and about just diversity issues in a country that's kind of going a little backward because of the current uh, government. 
and also i have to live by what i preach and kind of what i do day in day out right can't have a different persona on twitter so all of that has helped channel me in certain ways it also depends on who you follow um i think um the last probably 150 or 200 people i follow on twitter i would say 95% of them are women right it just happened these are interesting women um and that creates a very interesting echo chamber for me which i actually don't want to get out of yeah. which is a good echo chamber to have so it's a conscious decision as well to kind of say here are people in silicon valley here are people in tech here are people in various parts of the world who are championing these issues and i those are of interest to me so i need to follow them and that builds out an ecosystem um and you and i connected yes. at uh, inspire fest uh, last year and you haven't been able to get rid of me since no i don't <laughs> want to get rid of you because your perspective in fact at the marker hotel yes. in the bathroom the first thing i thought of when i walked in this morning and i right was you know what this bathroom would have been perfect for shane because the sinks are at your level right yes i don't know if anybody thought that no. but this is the first hotel where i find the sink at near my knees and i'm like you know what normally i would have been annoyed because of knowing you now i'm like this is perfect this is how it always should be different matter that the mirror yeah. is a little too high but that's we'll okay fix that next i have time. enough vanity i probably don't need the mirror but it's but that realization would have never dawned on me but for knowing you what a fabulous conversation can i just um remind everybody shenade that yes. you gave a fabulous ted talk in new york i think uh, we, you were there i was there you, i was privileged to be there it's been extraordinary and um, i think before i went to new york to do it i were very familiar i think in ireland with the concept of ted and what it is but i think i underestimated how nervous i would be um how honored and humbled and i mean that really sincerely we throw that round those words quite often but genuinely it was such a privilege and to see the impact that it's had from people tweeting me to say that you know the design of their office is now being changed in some way because of it and that's not just in ireland but around the world or that people's thinking hadn't been considered exactly that whether it be a bathroom and i think in many ways we've talked about the politics of public bathrooms and the transgender community have been very very vocal about that and it's wonderful now to see a conversation happening in harmony with that for the disabled community and i'm not trying to say that i'm authoring that conversation i'm not but it's coming from lots of different perspectives it's an incredible honor to play a tiny part in it tell us a little bit about the research you are doing at trinity in the school of education so my phd research is on student voice and the voice of the child and giving children a say about matters that affect them in schools i'm a primary school teacher by trade and one of the biggest things that really i suppose inspires me as regards to school is giving children a say about matters that affect them purely because that's the reason why i flourished in education when i started on the 19th of september 1994 i told everyone who would listen and those who wouldn't that i was going to be a primary school teacher and the idea that i was heard and and not questioned about whether or not I could do it had an enormous impact on my confidence and vision to be able to do it and encouraging that in children particularly when we have ratified the United Nations Convention on the Rights of the Child which article 12 says that children have a legal right to have a say about matters that affect them school is where they spend most of their time and how within the curriculum and within the responsibility of the teacher do we allow and encourage children to be heard you know one of those ways is within questioning but if you measure the questions that teachers ask often they're purely functional or they are about performance or they're about behavior and often they're questions that you don't need an answer to but we tone them in a way that we do what are you doing 
and I know exactly what you're doing, but it's to reprimand you. And often when children are given a voice and a say, it's purely yes or no, or it's to go to the bathroom. And actually, curriculum needs to be more than that. Education needs to be instigated in conversation and curiosity. Children bring so much education to the school and the classroom already. Why do we pretend that they are like the John Lockean era of tabula rasa and empty vessels? Why do we pretend that we are the one with the power and the authority and the gift of education when they can teach us so much. Thank you both, Raju and Sinead. Thank you for joining us. Thank you, Sinead, for taking over and doing such a fantastic interview. And uh, I hope you both enjoy the rest of Inspire Fest. Thank, Thank you. you. Delighted to be here. So that was Raju and Sinead. And next time we will meet Arlen Hamilton, who is the founder of Backstage Capital, which is a venture capital fund based in the States, which invests in diverse founders. I think you'll really like Arlen. She's so enthusiastic and passionate about what she does. So be sure to catch us for the next episode. In the meantime, this is just the start of the series, so be sure to tell your friends about InspireFest, the podcast, and if you can, leave us a review on iTunes because it does help other people to find us. If you want to find out more about InspireFest, be sure to check out InspireFest.com. This episode was produced by Bureau. I've been Claire O'Connell. Thanks so much for joining us. Don't forget, folks, that InspireFest 2018 is on June the 21st and 22nd in the Borgosh Energy Theatre in Dublin. So do go along to InspireFest.com and check out the speakers, book your tickets and come along because you won't regret a minute of it. There are not only the super speakers on stage, but also wonderful people go to InspireFest and there's a lot of events and it's a huge amount of fun. So come along. Sinead, what did you think of InspireFest? InspireFest was sensational. I'm very fortunate that this is my third InspireFest to Dayton and it really is extraordinary. Every person on stage is deliberately curated to instigate an interesting and new conversation and you kind of come away from the two days absolutely inspired but I think it takes a couple more days if not weeks and even months and maybe a year for those thoughts and things that you learned to percolate and to challenge you and yeah I'm kind of emotionally exhausted but in the best way possible. 